if you really want to grow a real estate organization, you need to know how to underwrite and assess deals. And you need to be able to do it quickly because a successful real estate investor is going to assess multiple properties per week. Every time they buy a property, they might have assessed or underwritten 10 different properties, maybe even 20 to find the right one, depending on the market that you're in and the current environment. Now I've said it plenty of times, there's four things you control in a real estate deal. The acquisition price, the strategy that you make, the work carrying out the strategy, and four, the market. But you don't really control that. It is what it is. The most important thing is, number one, the acquisition. So you have to get a good deal. That's basically what sets the successful investors apart from the unsuccessful ones. There are, of course, outliers there. The main way that you go and get a great deal is by assessing a lot of bad ones first. Everybody kind of knows the normal things that you go through to assess a deal. You look at the ARV, the after repair value, you know, what the other houses in the neighborhood are selling for in a similar condition to the way that you imagine them being in. That's an easy one. I mean, it takes some practice to really understand how to comp a property appropriately, but all in all, you get it. Same thing with rent values. Rent is a little bit tougher because the sales price of a house is really readily available. Whereas what a house actually rented for is a little bit of a darker thing, but there's still ways to find that information. You make sure that you're not in a territory that's different than the comps that you're looking at. That's all part of the learning how to comp a property appropriately. You then underwrite what it's actually going to cost you to do the deal. What is your acquisition price? What is your construction price or what do you think your construction price is or what bids did you get to do that work? Then you think about what are your other costs? What is the cost of the financing? What is the closing cost? What is the taxes and other expenses that you're going to have to pay your holding costs during that project? That's what most people are talking about when they're talking about underwriting a deal or ass assessing a deal. And I want to tell you as a professional flipper and a contractor for over a decade, this is what I look for in a deal. And not only do I look for these things to make sure that I'm not walking into a really bad deal that's going to end up costing me a lot more, but I also look at these things because this is how I get a better deal. A lot of people aren't going to understand the things that we're going to talk about today, but once you can highlight these things to a seller, you can get a much better deal. And when I say better deal, you might think that I'm stealing a house, but no, I'm talking about getting the deal that you actually should be getting. That's the problem is a lot of people have these horror stories of deals gone wrong because they found this, that, or the other thing. Well, you really just didn't know what you were looking for. There are ways to figure out what is going to be wrong with that property. Now, you're not going to be batting 100%, but I guarantee everybody can stand to get a little bit closer to seeing the things inside of the walls, seeing the signs that lead to those things, and also how to better underwrite a deal from a construction perspective. Now, this is not about <clears throat> getting a scope of work and a budget that's actually... Uh, 
that's absolutely perfect. In fact, I don't believe that's possible. Even for me as an experienced contractor, written hundreds of budgets in my life, I still don't have a perfect method of doing this. In fact, over the years of doing this, I've decided that I don't really think it's possible in these kind of deals. And so what I do is take the clues and then I write a budget that is as realistic as possible. And then I use skills and experience to manage to that budget. And that's really how you do it. What are the three things that I look for when I'm buying a property other than the normal underwriting that everybody knows about? The three things are one, the triple threat, two, the mirage, and three, it's the big six. So let's go through each one of those three main sections, starting with the triple threat. Triple threat, as the name implies, actually has three different items involved in it. One is signs of bleeding. If you watch other videos or listen to other videos of mine, you'll hear me say, this is still bleeding or the bleeding is stopped or something along those lines. And this is exactly what I'm talking about here. The first thing I'm looking for in the triple threat is, are there signs of bleeding and have they stopped? What's causing them? Most of the time when I'm talking about bleeding, I'm talking about water intrusion. That is the main cause of bleeding in a house. But what I mean by bleeding is something that is continually making your house worse. Once you stop the bleeding, then it is what it is. Now you can, you have stopped your house from getting worse and now you can start making it better. Whereas if you don't stop the bleeding every day, the house is getting worse. No matter what work you do, it is going to revert to the shape that it was in. Now, of course, a house does deteriorate over time somewhat like any house, but not if it's properly maintained. There are lots of things that tip me off for signs of bleeding. Rot on the windows, rot on the siding. When I see dirt that is up the foundation within six inches of the bottom of the siding. You see a house is supposed to be built with the siding starting at least six inches off of the ground. So I know that when the ground is closer than six inches from the siding, I know that something is probably wrong here. Now, of course, it could have been built wrong, but most of the time people don't build them wrong like that. Therefore, I know that dirt has probably moved up onto the house. This could have been manually, meaning somebody put dirt up next to the house trying to stop water from coming in. But more likely, what it means is that there's some kind of negative drainage, meaning the yard is sloping towards the house. And over time, that has actually moved the dirt to the house. And so now I have a buildup on the side of the house. Lack of gutters. If you just look and don't see gutters on the sides of the roof that are supposed to drain, i.e. not the triangle, but the edges. Also, if you see short 
eaves. The eaves aren't very wide or non-existent. Basically, the roof stops at the siding. This is almost always bad. Clogged gutters, gutters that have been clogged for a long time. And I mean, I see some gutters where it's like trees are growing out of them. You know that over time, water can't get out. Therefore, it's getting behind the gutters, getting into the fascia, getting into the siding. Never a good thing. And then soft floors in the house. This is usually caused from water getting into the crawl space and softening up the dirt and allowing things to sink. Big one is when there's a hump in the middle of the floor in the house, you know that the foundation around the sides have been ultimately lowering, sinking. Those are the signs of bleeding. Other ones are like efflorescence on the foundation, maybe mold inside of the house. There are other types of bleeding like bugs. So you look for termites or termite tracks in the wood. Look for other signs of infestation. These are all things that are making your house worse every day. Now bleeding usually leads to number two of the triple threat. This is the root cause for number two, the bleeding. The bleeding is the root cause for number two, which is structural damage. It's not the only cause. There are other more acute things that cause structural damage. A storm, for instance, is a, an extreme example. A storm hits, limb falls on your house, causes a structural damage to your house. But most of the time, structural damage is slow, and it's from bleeding. So most of the signs of structural damage are similar to the bleeding, like leaning walls, cracked drywall, sloping floor, crumbling foundations. Most of the time, these things are pretty obvious. You can see them or feel them. There's always three questions to ask when you have seen a structural deficiency in your property. One is it still bleeding? Two, is it structurally sound? And three, is it cosmetic? Or is it cosmetically appealing? Is I guess the full question there. Let's go through each one of those. Bleeding, we've already gone through pretty extensively. So hopefully you understand what that means and you'll be able to further assess if bleeding is still happening. Now, once you've stop the bleeding. Now you have to look at, is it structurally sound? Meaning, is it safe? Take the example of the humped floor where the sides of the foundation have obviously sunk, but you've stopped the bleeding. Therefore, is the sunken foundation actually a danger or it's just ugly? Meaning three, the cosmetic. It's just ugly. It's not getting worse. It's not a problem. It's not going to get worse since you've stopped the bleeding. But certainly you walk in that house and there's a big hump in the middle of the floor. It's pretty ugly. Now, when there is a question of structural safety, there is only one possible route and you have to fix the structural issue. Now, there are different ways to fix a structural issue. Taking that same example of the sunken 
foundation on the sides, let's say it's sunken and it's deteriorating, it's falling apart. Well, that is a problem and that's not going to be structurally sound. What do you do about that? Well, you could lift the sides back up. You could put in a temporary wall to hold up the side of the house, tear out the foundation that is crumbling, and build a new foundation. That would be the most proper repair. That would put things back to like it was when you bought the house. Or you could build a pier and beam structure right inside of that crumbling wall. And that would act as the new structural point load for that side of the foundation. I.e. the foundation wall is doing nothing but blocking wind from coming into the crawl space at that point. You may even go a step further and use the types of jacks that you've probably seen in a basement to where you can spin the top. And that's how you'd actually lift it back into place if you wanted to take that step. Once again, that would be cosmetic in most cases. There are some cases where the sloping is severe enough to where it's actually causing structural issues and then you need to lift it as part of the number two, the structural safety. After I've either determined that that sunken wall is structurally sound or I've done one of the structural fixes that we've talked about. Now, obviously, if you have to do a structural fix, my suggestion legally would be to get a structural engineer to tell you exactly what you need to do and then have people who are qualified to do so carry out the act of doing that. After that part is done, we move to, is it cosmetically appealing? Let's use the same example. Sloping floors is not cosmetically appealing. But if you're doing a class D property where it's safety and liability only that you're focused on, then maybe you choose to leave it that the cosmetic you've decided is not going to increase your rent value or sale price. And, and I'm not saying that is the actual right call there. I'm just saying maybe you've decided that's not going to do the thing that matters, which is increasing the profit on the property. That's the thing that matters right after safety and liability, which we've already covered. So you leave it and that's okay because it's structurally sound. It's not getting any worse. I.e. the bleeding has stopped. You've done whatever structural repair you need to do or determine that it's okay. Then you leave it or you do a cosmetic only fix, which maybe in this case is floating the floors out a little bit so they look more even, but you didn't change the structure at all because it's still structurally sound. Note here that if you do a repair like that, you are going to add weight by putting the leveler on the top, and so you need to make sure that the weight that you add doesn't actually make it uns unsound structurally. Structural repair. Is it still bleeding? That's number one. Number two, is it structurally sound? And three, does it look pretty? Now the third thing, the pro DIYer. Now, I am not talking about the guy who 
owns a house and he does a little bit of trim work or whatever things that you can see that are just ugly and unprofessional i'm talking about the guy who thinks he knows how to do structural repairs thinks he knows how to do electrical or mechanical or whatever things that he's done inside of the wall so with all of these items of the triple threat i am constantly searching for clues of these things because once again you can't see inside of the walls but you can see things outside of the walls that can lead you to the conclusion that those things are inside of the wall especially with the pro DIYer a lot of times structural is more apparent and if you look closely enough usually signs of bleeding are apparent enough there are times where you open up a wall and find stuff that had no signs or you overlooked them but with the pro DIYer, I believe that this is actually the most dangerous of the three of the triple threat because you can just do things so wrong and you can hide them. And I'm not saying they're doing it out of malice. I'm saying they just don't understand how things work. And really, I just, most things in a house I have seen, I have uh, learned a lesson from, and I'm prepared for it. But with the pro DIYer, still to this day, I open up walls of some work that a pro DIYer did, and I'm shocked. Never seen it before and have to figure out how to problem solve it. So I'm always looking for these signs. And you'll see that in a lot of the real-time scope of works that we do. Uh, I'll say things like, ooh, looks like a DIYer, because I am always on high alert for signs that lead me to a past DIYer being there a pro DIYer with quotes so the triple threat these are items that you ought to be using to get better deals on houses if those if any of the items of the triple threat are present in the house you are certainly going to have a bigger budget because the jobs that you'll have to do on that project are more than just what meets the eye. Those are things that are clues to more work that you're going to find, or at least the risk of finding more work when those things are present is much higher. And you've all heard the saying, you know, something along the lines of no risk, no reward. Well, that's what we're talking about here. Your risk is higher. Therefore, your reward should be higher. Truly, most of the time I'm looking for deals like this because while I'm not afraid to take on those items, even though the fear tax on these are very high, we'll get to fear tax here in a little bit, but I like a nice cosmetic flip just like the rest of them. Now we're moving to the mirage is what we call it here. There are a few different items that play into this. But basically what the mirage means is you get a deal that looks good on paper, but there are a few things that make it not so good once you dig a little bit deeper. The first one is the category I call the demo, the line of livable, maybe would be a better term there. But what this means is that it's probably the worst deal that you could buy is one that is not quite a cosmetic renovation. 
It looks like a cosmetic renovation. In fact, somebody was probably living in it when you bought it. It wasn't a totally vacant spot. I mean, it might have been vacant, but it was livable. So I talk a lot about this line of livable. And it's also one of the reasons that I'm so attracted to flipping houses as opposed to new building is that you're always close to the line of livable, which means that you're close to being able to generate revenue from that property. A cosmetic renovation is pretty close to the line of livable. In fact, it's probably already livable. You're just taking it from livable to nicer. You're upgrading a little bit. So sweet deal because you're already in the money when you buy it. In the money, meaning you can already generate revenue from it. Might not be great revenue, might not be enough to cover your costs, but you can generate revenue and that's huge. For instance, if you are building a new build and it you know, hasn't passed final yet to where you could actually create revenue from it, it is just worthless to you until you get that. Of course, you could sell it for a loss, but uh, I mean on a monthly basis. I guess I don't actually mean just on a monthly basis. I mean that it could generate revenue without you happening to lose out on a lot. So if you try to sell a house before it's livable, you're going to take a big cut on the price of that house versus if you can get it to livable, usable, you're going to start to optimize your return. So a cosmetic is already in the money. A then a house that is just before in the money is a lot of times what I'm talking about here or even you know, needs a full renovation or maybe even needs a gut. And you know that it needs that. And so the seller is thinking, well, you only have to do X, Y, and Z to get it to in the money. And so, you know, X, Y, and Z isn't that much. And so we're going to take what they're doing in their head is they're taking the price. Let's just say $300,000 is what the house would be worth if it was nice. And they think that you just have to do X, Y, and Z, $50,000 worth of work to get it to in the money. And so they base their sale price on that. Whereas you know that, or hopefully you know, if you really think about it, that it's not a straight line to livable. First, you need to go back on that spectrum you need to tear the house apart pretty considerably and then rebuild it. And so what they're not figuring in on their price, and hopefully you're not getting caught on this, is all the cost to take the house apart plus the cost to put those things back together. And it catches a lot of people. So also you use that explanation in your negotiations to get a better deal on the house. And once again, when I say better deal or a good deal, I'm really talking about getting the right deal to where you can get the returns that are enticing enough for you to take the risk that comes with real estate investing. Next section of the Mirage are cost efficiencies. So not all jobs or grouping of jobs are created equal. Let me give you an example. So you have two houses that We'll call it house A and house B. 
They both need $7,000 worth of work. So house A needs 10 new doors. Let's say that's $200 each, 2,000 bucks. It needs new cabinets, that's $3,200. And it needs new baseboards, $1,800. That gets you to your $7,000. And then you have house B, which also needs the new doors, 2,000 bucks. It needs electrical pairs, 3,000 bucks. And it needs a paint job. That's another $2,000. That adds up to $7,000. So on paper, that's equal, right? No, it is not equal. And here's why. In house A, the work that is necessary is doors, cabinets, and trim. These are all jobs that would be done by a carpenter. Or, in our case, an all-arounder. Whereas the... House B that needs new doors, electrical repairs, and paint, well, that is not all done by the same contractor. And anytime you have a new person come in, you're going to have some base costs that are added up, one. And two, it's harder to make efficiencies for those guys. In the first example, House A, that contractor could bring in a crew and have multiple people working at the same time on the same things or they could set up shop set up their saws and set up their workstation and go from one to the next to the next creating cost efficiency for themselves and anybody likes the situation to where they have multiple jobs to do in one place because they're protected for days to come you really always need to be thinking about these cost efficiencies. The more work you can give to one contractor on a specific project, the better deals you're going to get. Because then they start counting things in days of labor as opposed to per job. And when things are per job or per task, you start to get worse pricing because then you think about how much does that specific job cost me instead of how much does that chunk of jobs cost me. That's also why when we're giving scopes to get bids back to us, we try to group things up in the, in the bundles of jobs that create the best efficiencies for those people to bid on. Next part of the mirage is what we call the fear tax. And it's part of the jobs menu. It's one of the columns on the jobs menu is how high is the fear tax. Because the fear tax is basically jobs that are misunderstood or not understood. And those things generally get a higher, what we call fear tax. So fear tax is above and beyond what it actually costs to do that job. Let's give you an example. A job like painting doesn't have a fear tax on it at all because everybody knows how to paint they might not be good at it but they understand painting they understand what it takes you mask off the walls you put a drop cloth down and you paint no offense to painters out there i know there's more to being good at painting but for the most part people understand what it takes to be a painter or they think they do so they're not scared of that job and there's also multiple people who will bid that job so you kind of understand what it should cost. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have something like a structural repair or a 
sewer line replacement with a street cut. Those things you don't understand. Most people don't understand the actual steps it takes to accomplish that job. And this goes for more than just construction. When you don't understand something, you are going to pay more for it because people know that you don't understand it. And it's scary. Things that are not understood are scary. Therefore, people are able to put a fear tax on those things. But in this game, the fear tax is a double-edged sword. When you have a job that has a high fear tax, like a sewer line replacement with a street cut or a structural repair, or you know, on the jobs menu, all of those are listed out for you, all 100 jobs. And you will receive bids from contractors with a fear tax placed on it. However, you can also use that fear tax to get a better deal on the house. Now, you might be thinking that that's not a great thing to do. However, it is a fact that you will be dealing with that with contractors. Therefore, it is safe to say that the price of that job is higher. Now you will have skills to be able to combat those and you'll be able to take your fear tax down pretty considerably by breaking that job up into smaller tasks is what you'll ultimately do and you'll understand the steps that it takes. But at the end of the day, you are taking more risk because of the job with the higher fear tax. Therefore, risk versus reward. There is a higher risk. There's less contractors that can do jobs like that. Uh, you know that it is going to cost you more potentially, and therefore your reward should be higher. That's fair. All right, now for the third thing, the big six. When you are buying properties, you have to be able to get at least into the ballpark of what the price for construction will be. Now, over time, you'll start to develop a computer system in your head where you just look at photos of a house and you're like, oh, it's a $40,000 renovation or somewhere close. There are other formulas to get you closer, like, for instance, a cosmetic type of renovation usually ends up costing around $34 a foot. And in a bigger renovation might be more like 50, whereas a gut might be like 85 bucks a foot. And, you know, those are good parameters to go by and you know a lot of people will question like well isn't it different in every market and maybe a little bit but not too much different there's like certain jobs that are cheaper in some markets versus others and I know because I've lived in multiple markets like for instance back in Denver concrete was a lot cheaper than it is here in Tennessee and I guess that must be because there's a lot more contractors doing concrete there and you can get it done a lot faster because uh, it dries so quickly. And in fact, now that I'm thinking of it, maybe the contractors in Denver are better at concrete, therefore more efficient and can charge less because it dries so dang quick that they had to, they were forced to become better at it. That's just a theory for the most part. Prices of construction are pretty similar. Most of the time, the price to actually do the construction 
is the same. However, due to supply and demand, the there might be an inflationary tax on it, meaning the electrician got 20 calls today and everybody just wanting to get anybody there. And so the electrician says, Meh, whatever. I mean, I'll do it for $300 an hour. And people start saying yes to that. And then that becomes his new price. That is an inflationary tax. That's not his real price. Whereas in a different market that has a more balanced out workload versus contractors in the city, you'll get a more market price. You need to be able to put this budget together quickly because you're going to be assessing a lot of deals. And so I call this the big six because there are six big ticket items that at the very minimum you need to get down on a piece of paper or into a calculator so you can make sure that you've not missed anything that can really throw off a deal. However, with our jobs menu and our future estimating software, it is super quick for you to get a ballpark figure that you can take down the project, you know, take throughout the project and start honing in. And our jobs menu is available on our website and we'll have a link here, but just go to larasaconstruction.com backslash systems and you'll find it. And that's how we quickly put together the budgets. But if you don't have that or don't want to download that free thing, uh, we would just use the old school method of the big six, which I figure out if these things are needed and then I add a budget for it. So structural part of the triple threat, as we talked about earlier, is it getting worse? I.e. is it bleeding? Is it structurally safe? And is it ugly? If there is structural repairs needed, I put a budget for structural repairs. Uh, depending on how bad it is, I might put a budget for five to $10,000. A roof. Are there visible signs of water intrusion inside of the house? That's the first thing that I look for. Do I see any spots on the ceiling? And if so, I start to think that it might need a roof replacement. Maybe just a repair if I'm lucky. Are the edges of the shingles curled up? Is it losing some of the grains visibly on the shingles? Are some of the shingles missing? Do they have a visible loss of color? These are all signs that lead us to a roof replacement. Roof replacement has a price per square, but in most cases on an average size house, you can be safe by throwing $10,000 on your budget. Caveats to that is if you also see it looks like a skate park on your roof, you know, there's bumps all over the place, it might need new decking throughout and that will raise your price a little bit. Maybe I would budget for $15,000. I don't think it's actually going to cost you that much, but I'd rather be on the conservative side than the lower end. Plumbing. Does it have cast iron pipes? Are there water lines in there that are the old galvanized steel? In fact, in some municipalities, as soon as you touch the water lines and they're galvanized, you have to replace them all the way to the road. Not all municipalities are like that, so you can get away with reusing some galvanized. But generally, if there's galvanized in the house, it is not good. You know, it has like a buildup on the inside and the water pressure stops. And also, I think it's probably bad for you. 
are there cleanouts at the property? So I oftentimes look for newer cleanouts. You know, it's got the white PVC coming out of the ground because they didn't used to put those in every house. And so when I see those, I know that the plumbing has probably been fooled with recently. And most likely a DIYer didn't just throw cleanouts there. They probably had to throw cleanouts there because the city got involved. And if the city got involved, then I am I have some confidence that they had to do enough work to make things work right. So I wouldn't have to do a full, full replacement. But anyway, if any of those things are present or in the case of cleanouts, not present, I'm thinking that I'm probably going to have to do a decent sized plumbing job. Electrical. Does the electrical panel have the old fuse box or is it a new breaker box with the breaker switches, not the screw in, screw out fuse boxes? Does it have non-Romex wiring? Romex is like the yellow coated wire that you'll see or white in some cases the some cases meaning it's thinner wire but it looks the same as the yellow stuff that's 12 gauge and 14 gauge the most commonly used there are other gauges but those are the most most used in the house and if they have romex you know that it was at least wired sometime recently caveat there, Romex that looks professionally done. Also a DIYer in recent times would use Romex, but they might've done it wrong. You can usually tell if a professional has done it because it's just more well put together. The wires that come out of the breaker panel look nicer, neater, and cleaner. Whereas the DIYer kind of just throws them out of there and it's unorganized and, you know, whatever to get the job done. Does the house have an old service mast? The mast is where the line comes in from whoever your electrical provider is in the city. And does it like connect to the side of the house or does it protrude through the roof line? You need that electrical line where it connects with your mast once again, the mast is the pipe that goes up to meet with the city lines that come over from the telephone poles if it's overhead. It needs to be so far off of the ground so that way you know somebody couldn't go grab it. And so if you have a two-story house, sometimes it is actually on the side of the house, but most of the time the new ones go through the eave and uh, above the roof. But it's certainly going to be in some kind of piping, whereas the older ones are like a Romex type of wire going up the side of your house. That usually is not going to fly. It's usually a good sign that there are other electrical issues in the house because of the age. And six, windows and siding. It's another really big expense. These are all the expenses on a house that could be over $10,000. Sorry, that's not, uh, that is number six, but I missed uh, number five, HVAC. How old is the unit? Is it uh, over 10 years? So you can look on the side, there'll be serial numbers that you can look up and see how old the thing is. Obviously, a visible will uh, give you a pretty good idea as well. But once it's 10 years old, 
you got to start getting a little bit concerned. I would, uh, how do I say this? The A 10-year-old unit doesn't necessarily need repaired. In fact, I have units that are 30 years old and they still work. I said repaired, I meant replaced. They still work because of repairs. And so you can keep one working for quite some time if you know what you're doing. However, if it is 10 years or older, a lot of times, most of the time, and 100% of the time if it's 15 or older, I will budget for a new HVAC unit, whether I do it or not. How much rust is on the unit? Also an indicator of its age. Are there other heating or cooling devices inside of the house? So does it have an HVAC unit? And then you also see like a window unit or a floor baseboard heat unit. A lot of times that'll tell you that the HVAC system is underpowered. And so somebody added that later. Now, it could be that they're like the old wall heaters and they've been abandoned. And so you'll have to demo those out and do some electrical to make sure they're safely taken care of. But I'm looking for things that have been added, heating and cooling devices that have been added since the HVAC is put in. So like I'm walking through a house and I see that a room has some space heaters in it, you know, like the consumer ones that you would buy from Walmart. Well, I know that, man, they bought those because the HVAC is not doing its job. So those are the big six. And like, seriously, oh, dang it. Windows siding. How bad are these? Uh, a full replacement on windows are very rare. I rarely do it. I will save windows and repair them in most every case, but sometimes you actually have to replace the windows and that's a pretty big expense. A lot of times windows and siding go together. So if the windows got so bad that I need to replace them, then probably the siding got bad too. And usually those things got bad, not because of age. I mean, I've been able to keep some really old windows and uh, they got bad because water is getting into them somehow. Maybe a lack of gutters you know reference the bleeding for bleeding section for more on that but a big expense if you have to do it so each one of these big six items are like your ten thousand dollar plus potential items and so for instance if you had all six of these items you would just set a starting budget of sixty thousand dollars before you even had to do anything else once again, likely you'd be able to get it done for less than this, but we're being on the conservative side because this is what I'm assessing before I buy a house. Now, if you want to take your calculation one step further, you can take a few main items like flooring, paint, clean out, trim, and put a square foot price on it. Like flooring, material and labor, probably around five bucks. Painting, probably around $2. Clean out, probably around a dollar, maybe $2 a square foot, depending on how much crap is in the house. Like if it's a hoarder's house, uh, trim is usually a couple bucks per square foot if you have to do the whole house. And so just, let's say you had to do all of those things, five, two, one, two, we're at $10 a square foot house is 1500 square feet Add another 15 grand. So we had all six of the big six, 60 grand plus 
all four of these. Now you have uh, $75,000 for that renovation. Then there are other things that have unit costs like cabinets. Let's say $3,200. That's the unit price we have for cabinets. You can almost always get all your cabinets in for under that unless you're doing higher end stuff, but that's not really what we do. Even, you know, the higher class stuff, we're still getting shaker cabinets that are pretty cheap. So cabinets, countertops, we usually use butcher block and we can get that done for 1200 bucks and we, and usually cheaper appliances. I always put a budget for $3,500 for the standard tub uh, shower tile. I put a $2,000 budget or around there. I'd have to look at the jobs menu on the exact number. Maybe it's 1800. But anyway, I add those unit costs up. I add the price per square foot up. And then I have a pretty good idea of what that renovation is going to cost me. And I've been conservative about each one of the things. And so I'm going to have some fluff for the things that I didn't add onto here. Obviously, there are other items. Once again, go to the jobs menu. It's just a lot easier to do the jobs menu than go through each one of these things on your calculator like I used to do. But anyway, you got the triple threat, the mirage, and the big six. Basically, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find all the clues and the hard facts that lead to a reasonable expectation of what this project is going to look like. And then I use those things to also help a seller understand what a reasonable project looks like. Therefore, I can get an actual deal on the house. And then I can, yes, use the things that have a fear tax on them to get an even better deal on the house. And I think that is a fair thing to do because the higher fear tax is also a higher risk factor. And with higher risk, I should get a higher reward. Now, the reality is that things don't always turn out the way they look, i.e. the mirage. So make sure you're taking things into consideration like, do I have to go back on the line of livable? Do I have to hire multiple contractors to do all these jobs? Or is it going to be just a couple? Just remember that where your success in real estate investment is going to be found is in the acquisition of the deal and in the strategy of what you're going to do to take that thing to market. And if you can figure those things out, obviously there's more to it than just those two controls there. But if you figure those things out, you will be well on your way. All right. Thank you.